Thanks, friends, for listening to Nonprofit Lowdown. If you like Nonprofit Lowdown, you will love my free weekly newsletter with resources, fundraising inspiration, and cute dog photos. Did I mention the cute dog photos? Sign up at RiaWong.com. That's R-H-E-A-W-O-N-G.com. Ria Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Ria Wong with you once again, which must mean that this is Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am excited because my guest is my friend, Rob Lapidus. He and I sit on a board together, and we are going to talk today about confessions of a donor, because I think so often in fundraising, we just think about the fundraiser side, but we very infrequently, I think, have the opportunity to delve into the mind of a donor. So welcome, Rob. Delve away. Nonprofit lowdown. I like it. I like your verbiage there. All right, go for it. You know, it's the business of nonprofits, Rob. So before we jump too far into the donor side, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about yourself personally and your career, which I think is really fascinating? Happy to. I am an attorney by profession back in the day. I haven't practiced law in a hundred years and then morphed into the business side of real estate over the years, various public and private companies. And in 2000, 21 years ago, my partner Dave and I founded Eleanor Holding Company. The thesis behind that was sort of my financial, capital, legal, institutional background. And David's background in leasing and design and construction was a very good combination to add value in office buildings. And so we held hands, jumped off the cliff and sort of started our business, just the two of us with a couple of assistants. And now we have almost 400 people and about 10 million square feet in New York and have built a pretty substantial business based upon culture and values and excellence and making money. So that's sort of where it is. I learned from my father probably years ago that if you like what you do, you're going to be better at it. So for me, being a lawyer was not very enjoyable. It was a great skill set to learn. But being part of something, helping to create something, having an impact on your company, your employees, the community at large, was just much more rewarding. So that's where we stand right now. I'm not in the city this week. I'll be coming in next week. We have an office in Midtown Manhattan, and we own buildings all throughout Manhattan. And we've just expanded our business to Florida most recently. Wonderful. So let's do a little pit stop here because what I know about your family is your dad, you call them a mensch. He was an optometrist, actually. And you Correct. came from a middle class, modest beginnings, I would say. And you've done very well for yourself. So can you talk a little bit about the values that your family instilled in you and how that drives your philanthropic investments today? It's interesting, but when you're a kid growing up, you just don't realize the impact that people are having on you, your friends and family. My mother and father had a profound impact on me, as did my grandparents. So my dad was the type of guy who wouldn't cheat 50 cents on a tax return. And if someone gave him too much change, would hand it back. It was just the way we were brought up. There was a right and a wrong. And we spend so much time today in our society nuancing words and looking for little areas. Well, it's not really a moral conflict because I'm not doing it a certain way. So it's just the way my sister and I grew up. 
It's the way my wife grew up. So fortunately, values and commitment and doing the right thing has been part of the DNA. And even though my parents didn't have a lot of money, by any stretch of the imagination, they were charitable with their time and money. My dad, as you said, was an optometrist. If people came in who needed glasses, who couldn't afford them, my father would give it to them. He'd say, pay what you can, pay when you want. He was a terrible businessman, to be quite honest with you. And he grew up under the tutelage of his mother, who was a phenomenal businesswoman, a woman really way ahead of her time, very entrepreneurial. She taught me how to poker. She taught me how to invest in the stock market with my bar mitzvah money. So it was just interesting sometimes how things skip. But it's important to not only talk the talk, but walk the walk. And I think it's very easy to write a check. It's much more difficult to give of your time and commitment. But I think some things in life are pretty simple. If you're fortunate enough to be in like a financial condition like we are, I think there's an obligation to sort of share, not in a confiscatory tax way, the way some politicians like to talk about it, but what moves you, what's important, what are priorities that are important to you know, my wife, myself, my family, and leaning into those types of things. So I learned it from a very, very modest way growing up. And as we were economically better off over times, we just continue to lean into it more and more. Uh, and I think in the next chapter of our lives, it'll be an even bigger piece of our day-to-day -day existence. And it's nice getting our kids involved in philanthropy. I think they were both at a board meeting last night on the charity they're involved in. So it's also important to show those values, live those values so other people could emulate that. Yeah, I love that. So something that you mentioned that I think is really interesting. So you and I know each other because we both sit on a board together. And for someone yep. like yourself, who's done quite well for himself in business, I imagine that you're approached by a lot of people to sit on boards. And I'm guessing in your position, time is more valuable than money. So my question to you is how do you decide which things that you're gonna devote time to as opposed to just writing a check? Right, so first of all, you have to learn how to say no. Everyone in my family will tell you I've learned that one pretty well. But I always try to give people the ear to listen to what they have to say, to hear what they're passionate about. And I also think it's important to articulate to people, hey, there's lots of good causes out there. There's lots of good people out there. But the way I look at it is, where can you be impactful? And what are missions that are important to you? And why do you want to spend time and energy around those? So, I mean, my wife had a birthday party recently and she didn't want any gifts, but she sits on a board that's very near and dear to her called Delivering Good. And she said, anyone who wants to do anything, you know, in celebration of my birthday, please make a donation there. So you're able to do things like that, which is really nice. But for the most part, I think less is more. I think that it's easy to write lots of checks, but it's very difficult to be committed you know, to lots of causes. So the way I look at it is I don't want to be on more than two or three at any time. And for whatever reason I'm done with one, I've served out my useful life or my term, or it just doesn't, doesn't have meaning to me anymore, or the mission changes, or the executive director changes, or what have you. I sometimes use that as an opportunity to sort of move on. So I know some people who just are on way too many boards and I get it, but for me, that's just not how I want to spend my time and energy. And we've tended to focus on areas involving children, helping out people either with education or just with sustenance 
or giving them a chance to get on their feet, just sort of helping move assets from those who have to those who have not, where the impact is really great. And we've actually seen it happen. You actually see the recipients of charitable giving done the right way. It's really impressive and it's moving. I said to Amy Gutman, the president of Penn, I went to Penn and years ago, I was talking to her about her and the treasurer of the school at the time about giving money. And I said, like, no offense, but giving X amount of dollars to the University of Pennsylvania doesn't move the needle nearly as it does moving in some of these other charities involvement. And she said, totally get it. Like, you're not wrong. But her mindset is she's competing with the top 10 universities in the world. That's her universe. So like, hey, if Harvard has this and Princeton has this and Yale has this, you know, we want to have this too. So it's always interesting to understand the mindset. I think empathy is a very important trait to have in whatever we all do. If you really try to understand where the other person's coming from, then you can more graciously sort of handle the issues and deal with them in a way that's sort of fair and reasonable without just saying no all the time. Right. So Rob, the thing that I've always appreciated about you is you call it like you see it. You're very straightforward. You're very direct. So now's the time to spill some beans. We don't have to name names, but I would just be very curious to know as someone who's approached for donations quite a lot, what are some of the worst fundraisers that you've ever seen? And what are some of the best? So why don't we start with the worst? Well, in general, I really don't like the formulaic approach. Like here's fundraising 101. I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to send you this annoying email. And also some of the fundraisers just don't listen. They have their script. I say all the time in business to my associates, I said, if you got yes as the answer, stop. Like that's it. You don't need to continue. But there are some people that I work with or have worked with who just can't help continuing to blabber on and nothing good happens from that. I always say, we say in business, time kills deals. Continue conversation when you already have the yes is not a good thing. So it's the real formulaic, almost used car salesman approach that I don't really like and respect. Most people in the world that you're in, in the nonprofit world, are really good people. They're really really trying to make the world a better place. They've decided that making money isn't their number one objective, but really having an impact is it. And so I really respect that passion. You wish the people in business cared about what they did to that degree, but that's few and far between. So that DNA is a very admirable one. It's a tough climb. I mean, you know how it is. It's like literally Every single year, you're rewriting the chapter. Every single time, it's blocking and tackling you know, all the place. So really, really, really respect that. But I also hope that the other side respects me. And if I say no, or I say this isn't an area that's passionate to me, or I gave it the office, whatever I've said, and sometimes people just don't listen. They just continually, the same way when you get a yes, you need to move on. When you get a no, you'll need to move on too. And sometimes I find it infuriating when I'm like, no, no mas, no mas. And it, it sort of continues on. I've seen it's interesting. I've been involved in a couple different universities on boards and fundraising, what have you. And I've watched the really highly polished approach. And I've watched the much less thoughtful approach. And 
the good solicitors do their homework. They understand what you're about, but they don't do it in a way saying, oh, I understand you're married X amount of years. They don't do it by reciting your resume or your bio, but by saying, gee, there's a theme here. And I get what that theme is. So how can I sort of tie into it? And listen, everyone has their own styles. Some people are direct. Some people are less direct. Some people like to really create the environment before there's an ask. Some people like to go right between the eyes. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way, but if it's a mission that you're more likely happy with their mission and something that is more likely to attract your time and your money, it's one thing. Some things are very easy to say no to because I, I don't believe in that or see you later, goodbye, or raising money for politicians, not philanthropy, but a different type of capital raising. So for me, a lot of it's common sense. A lot of it is respecting time. And by the way, like anything else in life, you like being around people you like being around. That's so right. if the people That's are good right. people, they're happy people, they're uplifting, it's great. And it's great for me when I go to these board meetings or what have you, the not-for-profit world, it's such a different universe than my day-to-day -day world. Obviously, there's, there's a P&L and a balance sheet and all that to everything we do, but the levels of dollars are totally different in most cases. And the needs and concerns and issues are just very, very different. So if it's a mission you care about, I think you're able to add something more to the dialogue than here's my annual contribution, see you later, goodbye. And there's plenty of those, the vast majority of things are here's the contribution, see you later, goodbye. Right. So let me ask you this, Rob, because I have a thesis that, like you, I believe in respecting the donor's time. And for a lot of people, they won't take a meeting unless they're already sort of inclined to give. And so I guess I'm wondering, and my thesis is that most fundraisers wait too long to ask. They do a lot of like foreplay for lack of a better term. That's right. They do. Have you ever been offended by an ask or an ask that's been too early? No. It's funny. My wife has taken offense to a couple of times where I said to her, hey, I was with so-and-so and they asked me for X amount of dollars. She's like, oh my God. I said, honey, that's their job. I go, I know how to say no. It's fine. Sometimes I think it's better to ask the question than make the statement oh, are you inclined to support this cause? That's great. Like, what type of support are you thinking? And if I say, well, gee, I'm happy to give $100,000 over five years, then at least you framed something. Then if you say, well, would you consider 200 as opposed to just shooting off the mark? Once in a while, you could be pleasantly surprised. You could be asking for, it happens to me sometimes. It's funny, one of the pension funds I deal with, the guy who runs the real estate, asks me every year to make a contribution to this local charity. And because he works for pension fund, the maximum I could give is $250. It's like, I mean, it's a joke of a joke. I'm working on a $2 billion project with them right now, but they, that's all he can do. So if I could write a $5,000 check to that, I would do it in a heartbeat, but I can't for other reasons. So sometimes I think you're pleasantly surprised and you have to have thick skin because most of us in our lives are told no most of the time, for whatever it is. And you learn a certain skill set by having the phone slam down in your face and the door slammed in your face all the time. You learn how to be tough about it. You learn not to take it so personally, even though the cause is personal. The cause can be personal without you taking personally someone refusing to give. There was an executive director I used to work with years ago on a board. 
And she would just get angry. Like, how come they only gave this? They gave this, this. And I'm like, hold on a second. They're giving. Be appreciative of that. I remember during the financial crisis, 2008, nine, this person was very, very frustrated that people weren't giving the same level they were before. And I'm like, hello, McFly. We're in a different universe here. People are going to their companies. People are getting laid off. People are making less money. In that environment, you should just say, we appreciate your support. We understand what's going on. Whatever you can give this year. Like, that's the way to approach it. But that wasn't her way. Person's no longer executive director of that charity for other reasons. And by the way, sometimes founders of charities are the most difficult that way because it really is their baby. Oh, right. And they don't want to take <laughs> we can no for an do answer. a whole thing about founders. That's like a whole no, no, other. But, but I'm saying I've seen the give and the take all yeah. the time because, again, some people are very good at one thing. It doesn't mean they're good at another. They might understand the cause. They might not be good at fundraising. Right? Or they might not be good organizationally. Or they might not be good, but you have to know what your strengths and weaknesses are in everything we all do. And the best not-for-profits, the ones that are fortunate enough to have enough of a budget, know who runs this program and that program, what have you, instead of having someone be a jack-of-all-trades. And when you start off, you're a jack-of-all-trades. Same way we started our business, there were two of us. Right. So it's the same thing in the evolution of every business. So I want to go back to something that you said, because I think it's really critically important, which is to ask the question, because I think so often in the nonprofit, and these are like, these are conversations that we have offline, which is like, well, let's like strategize about this person and like Google stock them and all the things. Whereas I just seem like, have a conversation, ask questions. Like the conversation is the relationship. Would you agree that that's the strategy to go with? A hundred percent. That's common sense. Now, you also have to know who you're dealing with. Some very, very affluent people are surrounded by a moat of people who are there to say no and block to get there. So you have to have different strategies for different type of people. And listen, most people are busy and people are busy, want to focus on what they want to focus on. So sometimes it's better in like a cocktail party type environment to just, okay, I got a room with 100 potential donors here. I'm going to sort of make a ramp. And you'll come out of that saying, hey, these five people are worth following up with because they get it. Like, I hate going to charity events and we sit there and we run the film and we talk about what's going on. It's like, it was Jerry Maguire. You had me at hello. I'm here. I bought the table. Please, I don't want to hear. Now, now again, every different organization has their own way of doing it. But for me, maybe just because I'm impatient. I don't necessarily want to hear all that again. So you got to know your audience and you got to try to find, like I've been to some of my favorite charitable things have been around music because I love music. So it's easy to get me to a music venue for a charity event because I know I'll have some fun there too. But the same boring, here's the speech, here's the table, like shoot me. I'll write a bigger check not to go to those things because I don't want to be around them because they're so painful. So. I 100% agree with you. I cannot handle the benefit, the gala season. It's like, if I have to eat another rubber chicken, I'm going to shoot myself. It's one of the greatest things about COVID. I mean, you know, I, it's like, it, it actually is. <laughs> or like, I'm going to do it, but I'll be in my pajamas. All right. right. Talk to me a little right. bit about the universe of donations that you make, because obviously you probably make a lot of charitable donations throughout the year some are more significant than others how do you decide like what is the filter through which you run the decision to make a gift so listen to me it's almost like an ongoing thing now so through our business because 
Dave and I run a business in New York City, and there are a lot of people we rub elbows with who are in our lives who you talk about give get. It's really like I'm buying a table for your event, you're buying a table to mine. So there is probably, depending upon the universe, I'm sort of taking out the last year and a half because I'm not sure what COVID's done to this or anything else, but there were probably a couple hundred thousand dollars of donations we make on the corporate level. It's either cause you like, person you like, a person you're doing biz with, a partner, an investor, a lawyer, this, that, the other thing. So from my perspective, so there's that whole universe. Then there's all these just incoming things. You have a friend who's doing a bike for MS and someone else is doing a cycle for survival. So you end up doing, at least we end up writing lots of these small checks for all of these different causes because it's either a cause you want to support or a person you want to support. But the more meaningful ones are really, and I always, we encourage our kids to get involved. So both of my kids are on a couple of different boards. They have their own interests and it's great to just see what they do and how they do it. My wife's on one board that she cares a lot about. So that's one that we always give money to. Always universities too, depending upon the time, space. I was on the board. I was on the advisory business school board at Lehigh. My daughter was there. She's no longer there. I'm no longer involved. I've been involved with Penn over the years. My wife's been involved with UMass. So there's those sort of like historical things where every year you're giving something. And then now we actually spend time thinking about what's important and why. And mostly it's been reactive as opposed to proactive. But at least with us, we're now thinking about the proactive side of things. So I think over the next couple of years, we'll be able to do that better and direct giving differently through either a family foundation or something like that. Right now, it's been a little bit more haphazard. So the magnitude just depends upon what's the total amount of philanthropic contributions you want to make a year, comfortable. And sometimes it's a special milestone, a 25th anniversary, 100th anniversary. You want to do it in honor of someone or something. It's a little bit all over the map. Some friends of mine who have foundations are very, very disciplined in they give X amount to children and Y amount to research and C amount to education. And they do that every year, have like family presentations, like everyone has the right to bring something up and then sort of vote it on. We're clearly not that formalized, but I know some people who are, particularly if they have a lot of money that they want to be giving out. So last question for me before we jump to the audience. You mentioned the, call it, I guess, the social and business aspect of philanthropy. Like you're rubbing elbows with people, people ask you to give to their stuff, you give to their stuff. Mm -hmm. What is the role of philanthropy in business? Because I know some people will join boards because they want to start networking with a certain kind of people. There are some people who are more philanthropic than others. So I'm just curious, how do you think that philanthropy plays into a career or thinking about your business life? If you're part of a community, it makes sense to support that community. So one of the boards I'm on, Madison Square Park, we bought our first building there on the park, I don't know how many years ago, 15 or something like 12, actually 13, 2008. And I joined the board there and it was this great combination of, it was a public-private partnership because you're doing with the City Parks Commission and you're making the, keeping the park better, which is improving my building, that the ecosystem outside my building is this unbelievable park with all these amenities and art and all this kind of stuff. So I was able to get all my tenants involved. When new real estate players would come to the community, my job was to help twist their arm to get involved. And it's been great. 
And so there you saw a real logical relationship and it really flowed naturally. But of course, I want the city to be better. I want the park to be better. Hey, and guess what? Makes my building better too. That was a very easy, natural way of doing it. The board we sit on helps kids, impoverished kids in New York City. How could you not take the most downtrodden, particularly children who I think are generally all innocent, unlike adults, <laughs> how could you not give them a leg up and take the people, the most disenfranchised, and try to help them? I think some people do it very like programmatically, like I'm going to join this board because I like who's on it and I'm going to like get business from them. Whatever. It is what it is. We're, I tell everyone we're always, all of us are in sales all the time. So it's not a bad thing to be a salesperson. It's just sort of how you do it. But, but I get it. You want to be around like-minded people. You want to be around people who are going to expand your universe and horizon have a different viewpoint from that perspective. You want to be involved with things you care about. You want to be involved with things that are fun. So I think there's a normal, logical connection between business and philanthropy because, again, if you're making money and you believe in my thesis up front that if you're doing well, you have some obligation to help others, why not? And why not do it in a way where you can help others? It might even help your business too. So that's not a bad thing. I think it's realistic. So, you know, like I know the charities in New York City where people in my industry are involved. I know who's on the board. I know what it's going to be like every year. And it's like, it's just part of our ecosystem. But I think it's a good one. I think New Yorkers are, seem to be very charitable. People in our industry, in the real estate industry, seem to be very charitable. And it's nice. I mean, listen, you go to the hospitals in New York, there's some real estate family or Titan or Tycoon or whatever on the wall. You look at the board of trustees, they're packed with people from our universe. And I think that's good. I think it's a good reflection that none of these people know how to make money, but they know how to give back too. And I think that's a good... And by the way, if people care about their mission... And young people today care much more about that than, let's say, when I was graduating from school. It's good business to have that as part of your DNA. Hey, we're kind, we're charitable, we help our community. You might be doing it for the wrong reasons or the right reasons, but who cares? The kid getting the check or getting the door open for him or her doesn't care why the money came in the door, is happy the money came in. All right, let me ask, this is my last question before we jump in, but... I'd love for you to speak a little bit more personally on this because I do think there's an interesting transition, I believe, that happens with people, which is once you've kind of gone through the part of your life where you focused on your career, you start to focus on like, what is my legacy? What do I want to leave behind? What is meaningful to me? So can you tell me a little bit about what that conversation has been like for you and your family? And do you see that reflected in peers of yours? So a couple things. My legacy are my children. That's my legacy. I don't think it's a building I built. I don't think it's anything else. I think it's like, hopefully that value system you pass down to that generation is the legacy. And listen, everyone is different. It's a very personal situation. It's like art. Someone likes something, someone doesn't. I think in general though, as people are just more reflective about sort of what's going on, their priorities change, their interests change, what they want to spend their time on changes. I have a friend who is taking his company public and he's going to make a ton of money. And he said that these couple charities are going to be really happy because that's what he leads into. He's going to give a lot to them. And that's why I think it's always good to hang around the hoop because like you never know when the largesse is coming. It's like sort of long-term greedy. You know, someone might be giving you $5,000 a year for 10 years. All of a sudden, 
you know, in their will, there's a bequest for a million bucks. You just don't really know. So playing on the hoop that way is good. I don't know. For me, I always had the same philosophy of working hard and playing hard and trying to enjoy myself every day and trying to be the person I want to be every day. And so when I didn't have a lot of money, I would still write a $50 check to a cause that was important to me because it's how we were brought up. It made all the sense in the world. I remember when my wife and I were first married, I was in law school. She was making $15,000 a year. And at the end of the month, we'd have $20 left in the checking account. But even in those times, we gave like little teeny contributions. Uh, and I remember when we paid off our student loans, I thought we were rich. I remember exactly how much each student loan was, which is a joke today, like a hamburger in some cases. But the universe changes, your priorities change, your values change, your views change. So I just think it's an evolutionary thing. I don't think you wake up one day and say, okay, I'm going to be charitable. I think you are inclined to be that way, and you are, and you give more when you can, or you're not inclined to be that way. And some people I know who are very wealthy aren't charitable at all. And some people I know who don't have a lot of money at all are very charitable. So it's a values-driven decision, I think, more than a dollars and cents one. The good news is that my wife and I are of the same mindset, which mm -hmm. is good. We might have different priorities, but that's fine. But same mindset. And I think our kids are too. So I think that's a valuable, it's a great way to live your life because right. you feel good about when you wake up. I said, I spend my days in the trenches a lot and I'm dealing with people that I want to strangle half the time because they're just being difficult about something for no reason. So when you sit there and say, oh, okay, I'm going to go to a charity board meeting now. You're like, okay, take your pressure down and do some good in the world. That's so funny because when I run board meetings as an ED, that's when my blood pressure would go up. <laughs> but of let's course. jump to the question. So Brian, you have a good question to ask. Hi, Brian. Hi. How are you? Good. What's your question? Yeah, so I was just curious, donor advised funds, setting it up for family and just, is that a avenue you've looked at in the past or not gone that way? So for me, and listen, I don't know if there's a right or wrong here. I know a bunch of people have donor advised funds. I think for us, we're going to do our own family foundation. I want to have a little bit more control over it. I want it to be a platform that my kids can be part of. I'm not good, as you know, with rules and regulations and restrictions. Say my can't you know, buy into a community in Florida, but they tell me what I can and can't do and how I can fix up my house. So that's what we're going to do. We haven't done it yet, but that's on our agenda of things we want to do in the future and how we want to deal with our philanthropic giving. But donor advised funds is a very easy way to do it. It's plug and play. It's very efficient. And again, depending upon the scale, if you want to give lesser money and everyone has a view in terms of what the right amount is, but I think if it's under like a million or $2 million or whatever the number is, 5 million, everyone has a different number, then the donor advice fund is a much better way to do it because it's efficient and you get the scale and it's sort of less handholding. But for us, we just decided we want to do it be more directly involved with Actually, Rob, as a follow-up question to that, I'm curious because it feels like fundraisers spend a lot of time <laughs> Googling and trying to look at wealth indicators and all of that. And we also know that there are a million ways to shield yourself from... Yeah, don't believe everything you can read, that's for sure. Right. So for the fundraisers out there, like how would you even start to understand this universe of potential wealth out there? Because as we know, very wealthy people have ways of shielding like donor advised funds or shell companies or what have you, which makes the fundraiser's job difficult. Well, I am far from an expert in that, 
But I'll tell you, the people at Penn and Wharton are pretty damn good at it. I mean, they're like, you know, you walk into a meeting, they'll tell you what, you, what your eyesight is, what your blood type you are, and the last time you gave blood and where you voted. So I think there is technology and a lot of stuff available. And by the way, I guess it's relevant, right? But if you think about it, some people are wealthy, illiquid assets. Some people are wealthy in trust and other types of vehicles. And some people, it doesn't make a difference how wealthy they are. You're not going to get to it anyway because they don't want to share. So I guess it's a good thing to know. Listen, when my synagogue was raising money to redo the synagogue, they knew who the five wealthiest families were, and they went to them to try to shake them down and start off fundraising. I don't know how important it is to be that minute in terms of understanding it. I'm telling you, I'm probably wrong, and I'm sure the major fundraisers, whether a university or other not-for-profit raise the money, probably has very, very sophisticated algorithms. But listen, if you're at a university, you start with everyone who went to university and you sort of know there's a logical place to start everywhere. When people are in business, like they're in the insurance business and you're going to get hired as a job, that company, your hiring person wants to know, do you have a natural sphere that you can go to? Maybe you're a golfer and you meet people at the golf course, or maybe you play the guitar, or maybe you're on the board of your synagogue, whatever it is, there's some place to go. So I have no idea because I've never looked at it that way. When I need to raise money for my endeavors, the world is out there. Right? It's published all the time who the biggest sovereign wealth funds are, the biggest opportunity funds, and the biggest insurance companies and institutions. So you can find it, it's publish it, and they're proud to tell you because they want to put the money out. They want to know you're out there. Wealth is a very private thing. Giving is a very private thing. I find a lot of people don't like to talk about it. Some of the most generous people I know are very, very quiet about it. And other people are not as quiet. Some people, because they want to say, hey, look what I gave. But the ones who aren't quiet to me just really believe in the mission. And they want to go out there and say, this is a great mission I gave. You should give too. All right. So on the topic of personal, a question for you, which is, do you have any suggestions about how to maximize the amount? What is the best way to know your donor in order to ask for the correct amount? And I suspect I know what your answer is going to be, but how would you respond to that? The answer is I really don't know. Don't forget, I've been on that side, but are you thinking about, I think it depends upon, are you thinking about, is it a one and done thing? I want to get the biggest bang for the buck. Well, am I building a relationship that's going to be sustainable over a period of time? That's one way I would look at it, but I really don't know. It's hard for me to answer that question because I think everyone's way to get to that answer is a little different. And listen, at the end of the day, you want the donor to feel good about the donation, right? Part of the selfish reason of giving is to make you feel good. Hey, I feel good. I gave money. I think the last thing you want to do is push them to a point where they gave more than they wanted to, or how about this one, made a pledge that they're not going to actually fulfill. What are you going to do? Ever hear of a non-for-profit like suing someone for a pledge? I mean, it happens once in a while, but no one wants to be known for that. So you don't want to push someone into a place they're uncomfortable and not going to have it. So it's very, very hard because, again, some of the wealthiest people I know give very small amounts, and I'm shocked. And other people who I wouldn't think at all have the wherewithal to make bigger contributions do it. Why is that? Probably because it's more meaningful to them, you know, at a period of time, whereas like the uber wealthy person who's getting asked these questions all the time just says, like, leave me alone or I'll give you a few dollars to shut you up. But I don't think it's a one size fits all. I really don't. So I think what you said early on, Rhea, is really the right thing. Know your customer. Know who you're talking to. 
know what turns them on, know, get an idea of what giving looks like to them. And there are ways to find stuff out. And I'm sure some of the technology that's available to not-for-profits does that. But the most important thing is getting to know them and seeing if the mission ties into their values and you can lean into it sort of more that way, I think. 100%, because I always say fundraising is more of an art than a science. Like you can have all the data in the world, but at the end of the day, you have to talk to the person and see if they're inclined to give to your organization and if they like you and if they like the cause. And that is not something you can put on a spreadsheet and calculate. That's right. We tend to it every year. We have these galas. We get the list. Oh, Joe Schmo gave 5,000 last year. How come they gave 2,500 this year? It's like, well, Joe Schmo is friends with the honoree last year, doesn't know the guy from Adam this year. You know, be happy they gave something. And by the way, when you are doing it, we all know getting a phone call is better than getting an email or a text. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could do your first wave of emails and texts, and then to the 25 people you really want to lean on, you got to call them. That's right. And That's you got to right. say, because if it's not personal enough for you to pick up the phone and make a call, then why the hell should they lean in and buy the $20,000 table, not the $10,000 table? You got to ask them. And in most you know cases, what? I find if you ask, you get it. You know what they say? That an ask in person is 70% more effective than the email ask or the text ask. I would say even more than that, but I agree. I totally agree. Unless it's someone, if you know that Rob Lafferty does $10,000 a year to this cause and you email me and I get my 10000 I think you're right. If you want it to go to 20, you got to do something more personal. You got to like, for a man who's been married as long as you have, you know, you got to put a little sugar in if you uh, want to keep the relationship going. You got to show some leg. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob, thank you so much. This has been really fun as I knew it would be. I really appreciate your insights and thanks so much for your time. And your glasses are awesome as always. And I look forward to seeing you back in the city soon.